You're listening to KFI AM 640, the Bill Handel Show on demand on the iHeartRadio app. KFI AM uh, 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. Bill Handel here on a rainy Friday, March uh, 10th. Some of the big stories uh, that we are uh, carrying. Uh, First of all, actor Robert Blake has died. Uh, Very interesting guy. Had a lot of issues. And uh, the arrest uh, of three Mexican nationals in El Monte yesterday for possession of a million, a million fentanyl pills. And it was a... Typical sting operation. Uh, police, you know, show up uh, as a buyer of a fentanyl, and of course, these guys are busted. The other uh, big story, our local story, is uh, the fact that we have another storm that we're looking at here in SoCal. Uh, the heaviest rain will be later on today and in through tomorrow. And a bunch of concerns about what's going on because it is, we talked about this earlier uh, yesterday and the day before, it's the Pineapple Express, which is a warmer rain. And the snow levels are now above 10,000 feet, which is just the snowpack. I mean, there aren't any communities. Crestline and Big Bear, uh, the communities that were snowed in and are still to, in effect, snowed in, are uh, well, well below that. So they're going to get rain and a lot of it which means there's going to be melting, but it's great for the roads uh, except the flooding. And uh, that's going to be a big problem. And the snowpack, the melting of the snowpack, more so than it would be under these circumstances, under normal circumstances. So the mountain communities are still the big story. Uh, big Bear Crestline uh, that were snowed in uh, up to uh, 100 inches of snow. That's, uh, that's over eight feet of snow. I mean, we saw video of uh, the people walking down the sidewalks or coming out of their house and they had somehow dug a pathway and it was, uh, there was 15 feet of snow, packed snow on either side of that pathway. I mean, you'd walk down and you'd be looking up and there's another 10 feet of snow. And there was a huge issue as to the removal and a lot of controversy. Uh, they didn't have, uh, the authorities didn't have enough snow plows. They didn't anticipate uh, enough uh, of uh, the, uh, the snow coming in because uh, we had the warning. It was going to be a blizzard warning. And that's going to go on for a while. Now, the good news is the major roads, for the most part, have been cleaned uh, off, uh, have been plowed. And uh, the uh, secondary roads are starting to be that. So... Uh, a couple things uh, about this uh, this story uh, that that I want to bring to the table. I heard one or two stories of gouging, of price gouging. That's it. The rest of it are the rescues and the food and water that is being distributed. A story yesterday about animals because this is animal country up there. It's a lot of open space, and you had cows. And they couldn't get out of the snow, and helicopters were dropping bales of hay so the cows could survive. And uh, one, the, the one market in Crestline collapsed under the weight of the snow. And in the parking lot, from what I understand, uh, they had set up a distribution center where free food, free supplies, free water was being handed out. 
And usually you get a story about or stories about gouging, these ridiculous prices that are being charged by store owners, by, by people who have a surplus of goods. We're not getting that. And I was wondering, why is that? Is it because uh, the communities are so tight-knit? Is it because people that live up in the mountains are nicer people? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know anybody who lives in the mountains because I don't go to the mountains. I look at the mountains, but I'm not a snow kind of guy. You know, I don't enjoy the snow. I remember the first time I ever saw snow in my life. I was uh, in school. I went to school in Canada for uh, a couple of years. And it was Vancouver. And the snow came down, and I was in a dorm. And everybody knew I'd never seen snow. So one of uh, my dorm mates, or had a room down the hall, uh, literally pulled me out, woke me up, because there was a, the snow was falling, and it was just terrific. It was beautiful. And there were about, there was about four inches of snow, so you could crunch in the snow, and pulled me out and said, this is snow. And I sort of looked around, and I said, eh, it's snow. I did about two minutes of snow, and then went back to my dorm room and fell asleep. So I'm not kind of a mountain person. But the stories of survival, too, there's a story that broke about, uh, we did this morning in the news, an 81-year-old man who was in his car for almost a week and survived. And we're hearing these stories of helping people out of homes. Unfortunately, 12 deaths. Originally, it was reported there were no deaths or one as a result of a traffic accident at the earliest part of the storm. And now they have discovered already 12 people that have died uh, of exposure, died of the cold, and we don't know. Well, autopsies, of course, have to be done because we don't know whether they died of natural causes, had a heart attack. There was one who died as a result of uh, kidney failure, failure because she couldn't get down the mountain and they couldn't bring up uh, the insulin uh, also, there was dialysis uh, that had to be uh, that had to be rendered or had to be given to her. She couldn't get down the mountain for uh, going to the dialysis center. Uh, so uh, we now have twelve. Uh, twelve uh, people have died officially, and we are looking at in terms of rain here in Southern California. We're looking at uh, what uh, half an inch to one and a half inches of rain. Up in uh, Northern California, San Luis Obispo, particularly uh, five to 10 inches of rain. That's massive flooding. That is huge flooding. So uh, Jason will keep us surprised and uh, just hang on here to KFI and you'll get the news uh, all day long regarding the weather. You want to stay tuned. A uh, story I want to share with you is uh, about, um, and, and I've shared this before, and you sort of know this, uh, California cities, California in general, uh, people are moving out. More people are moving out than moving in. And but for immigration, uh, both legal and illegal immigration, uh, the numbers uh, would have been ridiculously more people moving out. As a matter of fact, uh, until a couple of years ago, uh, there was a net gain because of immigration, uh, it's that simple. If you look at uh, the birth center among non-ethnic, non-minority people, uh, the birth rate has dropped dramatically, and uh, not that many people move to California. 
because the housing is so insanely expensive. So there are cities that uh, are in California, some near here, that are net immigration cities, that people, more people are moving in than are moving out. Would you be surprised if I told you San Francisco and Los Angeles have a net immigration? I hope so, because there is no chance that people are moving into L.A. and San Francisco. And why is that? Well, here's the logic. First of all, the housing prices are insane. People can't move in. Even, let's say you have uh, a group of... um, uh, illegal aliens coming in. I don't know. Is that, can you even say illegal aliens anymore? Undocumented moving in. And traditionally, uh, you'd have many, many of them, uh, especially if you're talking about uh, people who are working uh, in jobs that are minimum wage or even, unfortunately, people who underpay them cash under the table and won't even give minimum wage because there's a lot of vulnerability there and some pretty crappy people. And what they would do is they would load up two-bedroom apartment and 10 would be living there. Well, it's a combination of even that has gotten really expensive and the border is more secure. As much as you're talking about this flowing of uh, illegal immigrants, it's not here in California for the most part. San Diego, the San Ysidro border is not nearly as porous as it is in Texas, for example. So you have fewer people moving in, uh, you have more expensive housing, and the other reason people are getting the hell out of Dodge is they can. We've got remote work. And particularly in the inner cities, the downtown area or near downtown. So if people work downtown, uh, they want to live as closely as possible, even Uh, downtown L.A., which has become gentrified, and you actually see young professionals living there. It wasn't too long ago where people work downtown, and by 5 o'clock, there was nobody on the streets. It was a ghost town. Now there are bars, et cetera, and restaurants where young professionals move in. Well, guess what? They're moving out. They're moving out because of those reasons. Uh, The cost of housing, uh, you've got the fact remote work is now available. And if you go into the out, uh, the suburbs way out there, you know what you can get? I mean, you can get some pretty insane amounts of land and house for much the same money. So what are the cities? Menifee out in uh, the uh, Menifee is out in Riverside County. Uh, Got Irvine to an extent. Farther out, the better it is. Uh, You have um, Walnut uh, up north, and these are generally suburbs with new housing units coming online. Now, Irvine, that's expensive. That's high price. That's close to job centers, but still growing. And when you have others like Menifee that are way out there, now you're talking about bigger homes, more outdoor space, and if someone is uh, working remotely, why not? I mean, what difference does it make? I hear stories about people, uh, business associates who, not specifically that I know, but business associates who they know. I know a guy who knows a guy kind of thing. I mean, they're working out of Europe. They're working in the Caribbean. There's a friend of mine who's a financial analyst, and his partner is in the Caribbean. 
sitting there with a daiquiri on the beach with his computer in front of him and doing the jobs. And so uh, there's a story about uh, this guy, Kevin Britton, who uh, he and uh, his uh, wife, uh, both working in the city, in Los Angeles, and said, we can't stay, and, and they were able to get out. So they bailed out. They moved to Las Vegas. A lot of people go to Las Vegas. Uh, the only problem with Las Vegas is if you've ever been there during the summer, you uh, and the wind is blowing because they have wind during uh, the summer uh, season over there. I don't know if you've ever had, uh, had a hair blower, a hair dryer, uh, with it on completely full blast and on the hottest, uh, the literally the hottest uh, position it can be in, blowing right in your face. That's what happens when you walk outside the door. But people love Las Vegas. Uh, I have uh, friends and a lot of them who moved to Las Vegas, and uh, you know they absolutely love it. So you've got uh, this uh, Brian um, Harrington. And he just got fed up with the cost of uh, housing, which was completely crazy. Uh, The crime rate, uh, the regulations here. I mean, I'm going to do a story in a few minutes about Elon Musk uh, planning his own city, Musk City. And uh, that's a hell of a story. And there's a couple of analogies. Uh, How is Elon Musk like Walt Disney? You, ever, you would never think the two would uh, be compared to each other. There is a really close analogy there. So uh, Harrington is a 34-year-old photographer, and uh, he said the pay scale, the money that I make as a photographer, just isn't enough. And he lived in Silmar. Now, Silmar is not a pricey area at all. I mean, Silmar is sort of middle to lower middle class in terms of uh, the cost of housing and the jobs there and the income of that particular community. I, you know, I don't know if there's any high-end homes uh, in Silmar. If anybody lives in Silmar and is all pissed off at me for saying it's uh, medium minus level homes that are there, you can scream at me. So he moved out to Las Vegas. And he said, I'm done. And he's not alone. Menifee, another city. It wasn't even a city until 2008. Why then? Since it was, uh, since then, it went from uh, 85,000 in 2016. And by last year, it was 116,000, almost doubled. So that gives you an idea of people moving out. So you have the pandemic. That's one reason. And created remote work so people can get the hell out and the cost of housing and the regulation and then just living in Southern California. By the way, here is uh, what uh, uh, Brian Harrington gave up. And he's now, he gave up a great job. He's an independent photographer. And what does he photograph? High-end cars and porn stars. That he gave up. I don't even want to go into that. Oh, high-end cars. Eh, Porn stars. You know what? Las Vegas is not a bad place if you think about it. There is a lawsuit that has just been filed. Actually, two lawsuits. And it has to do with affordable housing and ADUs. uh, Those um, granny flats. 
Corbin Carson has been following this, and uh, this is both legally fascinating and also a community saying that's enough. Uh, so, Corbin, what's the latest on this? Yeah, so like most issues, uh, this is a lot of polit- political bluster on both sides, covering up a ton of the weeds. But there's actually a lot of issues that people really care out going on here. Uh, on one side, you got a housing crisis, uh, and, and, and then on the other side, you got a city trying to maintain local control while rejecting what it calls urbanization. And it centers around uh, three, maybe four housing laws that are different but similar. The first is the RENA numbers. That's the uh, Regional Housing Needs uh, Assessment. This is what Huntington Beach's lawsuit yesterday is all about. Their lawsuit challenges a state-mandated goal that it planned for the construction of 13,368 new homes by the end of the decade. All cities have their own allotment that they have to plan for. Here's Mayor Tony Strickland talking about that that's a flawed process that the state chose that violates the state's own laws, so therefore it can't be a mandate. The lawsuit is a challenge to the state's regional housing needs allocation laws that have mandated that the city of Huntington Beach plan for 13,368 units of high-density housing in just the next few years. To put this in perspective, if the city actually built 13,368 units at 20% inclusionary rate, the city would nearly double in size in the next few years. Earlier this year, the state independent auditor found that HCD's method for making these RENA determinations was flawed and not supported by evidence. This is a massive blow to the integrity of the state RENA laws and to the governor's claim that RENA must be zoned for cities as a matter of statewide concern. And this is a process that has been challenged by many cities as to how many numbers were too high for some jurisdictions and really laughably low for others. Yeah, and it, this is where... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say this is where state officials are kind of hedging on their answers yeah. because the process has been heavily scrutinized. Yeah, and uh, this, and I, here it is uh, in uh, my interjection, and that is uh, you argue a state law that on its face... Uh, you can't argue with. Uh, the state is allowed to pass these laws and can mandate. However, when it makes it impossible for a city to deal with it, just you, we can't do it. You know, build yeah. a, you know, I want you to build a 30-foot wall all the way around the city. It's impossible. We can't deal with it. So you attack the very nature of the law saying it can't be done with. That is a legitimate lawsuit. Now, the argument is, is can you build it? Is it feasible? Huntington Beach says it's not. So that's one argument that makes a lot of sense. Let's go on to the next. Right. And then and just before we leave the RENA numbers, I want to I want to I want to add on to that thought that you just made is that they're trying to uh, um, build out what the city says that there's 95 percent of their city is already built out and this and and that the state is trying to cram a million uh, uh, units of housing into the state's five percent of developed land so that there's 95 percent according to the state that is undeveloped that this that uh, excuse me according to the city that they're not putting housing in and then the final thing thought on that and this is councilman casey mckeon this is really interesting interesting he says that the actual decision making process of who gets what that's flawed it turns out that a certain senate bill 106 was sneakily passed in 2017 as part of a budget trailer appropriation bill which carved out favored portions of the state to be exempt from the very same housing laws including the affordable housing high density mandates that are imposed on huntington beach and did you know that because of senate bill 106 Marin County is enjoying a moratorium on affordable housing building requirements until 2028. Do you know who lives in Marin County? That's right, 
Gavin Newsom. <laughs> and, and that's one of the sticking points. I mean, they've brought that up. Uh, I've covered this since in Huntington Beach. This is the first time they challenged this in 2019. I covered this uh, when they were challenging this as a sanctuary state and also when they were uh, uh, yelling about the beach. Huntington Beach has taken the state to task several times. But the, the, the issue of how these things are chosen is, is one of their biggest things. Yeah. Now, let's move on. To, go, ahead. go ahead. Now, let's move on. Yeah. To the second one is the ADUs, the accessory, uh, accessory, accessory dwelling units. The city this week at their city council challenged two other laws and, and, and talked about the third. Um, one was the ADUs, the accessory dwelling units. The other is the builder's remedy. I'll get to that in a second. And the third is uh, Senate Bill 9. That's not really an issue here, but it was mentioned. The ADUs, or accessory de- dwelling uh, uh, units, this is what the AG is suing over. These are extensions to homes and granny flats on the property. This is seen as a way to uh, create what the state calls soft density. People can create some place for their parents or kids who are limited in incomes to remain in California. Uh, this is where the the uh, on Tuesday the city said we're not going to accept, accept any more applications. And uh, AG Rob Bonta says you can't just pass a uh, you can't just pass some kind of motion and then you're just able to skate the law. The thing is, no one gets to pick and choose the laws they want to follow. You can advocate against legislation when it's proposed. You can call, you can email, uh, you can go in person and speak at committees or to legislators. You can tweet at the governor not to sign a bill. You can challenge the law in court, but you cannot throw a law out the window because it doesn't suit you because you don't want to follow it. The law is the law. It applies to everyone. Yeah, and And he's he's right about that, Uh, by the way. That one is the strongest argument the state has because it's not mandating anything. It just says if you want an ADU, uh, the city can't stop you from having an ADU. Right. And that's across the state. So uh, that one's going to win, I think, or that argument is going to prevail. And in, and in fairness, uh, right as they were having the press conference yesterday in Huntington Beach, after I spoke with the city attorney in the morning, they had a press con- conference in the afternoon, and the city's already walked that back. They're already saying we're re-accepting applications, but there was, a pro- there was a period of time when they were not accepting applications that that's probably where the lawsuit's going to continue, and the city's going to have to answer for that, for that amount of time as to when uh, applications for granny fats or uh, ADUs weren't being accepted. Then we have Builder's Remedy. This is a law that's been around for decades uh, and allows builders to sidestep city zoning laws in cities without a state-approved housing plan, which Huntington Beach does not have a housing plan for that 13,000 units. And I should say, that's just a plan. They don't have to build. The cities do not have to build these housing units. They just have to plan for them, and then builders can come in and decide whether or not they want to do it. All right, Corbin, thank you. I mean, we can go on and on with that one. Uh, we can. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, that, that, listen, that's important. So uh, this isn't the last we're going to hear of it. Uh, have a good one, Corbin. Thank you, sir. I don't know if you are aware, but outside of Orlando, maybe an hour drive, is a town called Celebration. Celebration was created by Walt Disney. And it was a community that Walt Disney was, in fact, the Disney company was going to get very involved with and was. uh, Now it's an independent town. Disney has no connection. And if you go there, it's kind of a nice area. People like it. It's like old-time America. I mean, the buildings are sort of turn of the last century. 
Uh, Walt Disney, who came from Missouri and came from a small town, you know, with a courthouse and, uh, you know, the the one main street with the shops. I mean, he sort of has, uh, he sort of envisioned that was America at its best. If you go to Disneyland and you go along Main Street, walking into the park, that's what it looks like. So the town of Celebration is an entire town that way. This was his vision, and people love living there, by the way. Guess who else is doing it? Elon Musk is now building his own town near Austin, Texas. We don't have a name yet. I think he has a bunch of Russian friends, so he's thinking of calling it Moscow. Uh, Probably not. But he is planning this. And I mean, it's going to be a city. Now, why is he doing this? Well, because it's out in nowhere He's building a uh, the a Tesla battery plant there. It's one going to be the biggest in the world. SpaceX is going to have, uh, by the way, the Tesla plant's a million square feet. Uh, the SpaceX building is going to be half a million square feet. By the way, the name of the town is Snail Brook, uh, just to let you know. It's not Moscow. And uh, where did uh, he get the name? It's... Uh, uh, the boring company, his boring company, his tunnel company, it's their mascot. So there you go. There's the name. And so what are they going to do with this? Well, it's going to be like Celebration. It's going to be its own community. Now, here is the difference. What the Disney folks did was build and develop all of this property. Actually, had developers come in. And uh, would sell these homes, and at first uh, they weren't doing very well. There was real issues with the, uh, the quality of the buildings, roofs leaked, etc. And now it has evolved into a community that everything sort of works. I mean, they were able to fix everything, and you got roads, and you got parks. I mean, it really is a very nice uh, place to live. Very nice town. It's its own city celebration, uh, uh, Florida. Well, that's exactly what Musk wants to do with Snail Brook. And the difference is it's not going to be market price. For example, he's putting up rental units. And he is going to rent those units, two-bedroom, nice, spacious apartments, for $800 a month for his employees. Now, uh, the average rent uh, in the city, uh, because this is its own town, uh, is $2,200 a month for a two-bedroom. So who is not going to move and go into an 800-room, a $800 a month apartment, a brand-new apartment built by Musk? And Musk has his weird ideas, so there's uh, it's probably going to be very good quality. And my guess is uh, it's, always, it's already going to have some weird stuff going to it because that's uh, Musk. And Musk left California, like many other people, uh, two years ago. He couldn't stand the rules, the regulations, certainly the taxes. And then he took uh, Tesla and Boring to Texas. He called California the land of over-regulation, over-litigation, over-taxation. Really? That's a shocker. Haven't heard that one before. Now, uh, what makes Texas... uh, Uh, particularly attractive to a lot of developers moving out. It has very few uh, zoning laws. It has few environmental and labor requirements. It has no corporate income tax or uh, uh, it has no income tax uh, for individuals. Uh, It has no capital gains taxes on individuals. 
And so what's been going on, he's been picking up land like crazy. And he's going to build that residential uh, community. Incidentally, he is not alone either. You know, there are a couple of uh, places in, uh, in the United States where you had owners of uh, major companies, and these were straight-out owners, we're not talking about public companies, who were so ahead of their time when it comes to this. Uh, one was Milton Hershey. Yeah, that guy who created the Hershey Company. The other one was John Kohler. Kohler, when you see the toilets and you see the urinals and the sinks, the Kohler Company, which is still privately held by the Kohler Company, uh, by the Kohler family. It's a several billion dollar a year uh, company of which it's one of the largest privately family-owned companies on the planet. And what they did, and uh, I think Hershey was 1880-something and Kohler was 1903, and what they did is they set up these communities. And if you go to Kohler or you go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, you will see these communities around the factory, which now are no longer uh, given to the workers. I mean, they're just open market. But they were uh, subsidized by the company, and both of them had parks. Uh, they had recreation areas. Uh, that is how... Uh, the employees were treated way, way ahead of anybody else. And very few companies do this. Very, very few. And that's Hershey and Kohler. And I think Musk is uh, planning to do the same thing. Whether we know that's true or not, who knows? He started a lot of stuff that went south. I mean, the guy is uh, an entrepreneur of uh, just uh, extraordinary levels. And a couple of his companies have done very well, like Tesla, like SpaceX. The boring company, eh, it's sort of up in the air. But there is drone footage and YouTube videos that show the construction of tunnels between the boring company and SpaceX parcels uh, that run underneath a public road. So what he's planning is not only to build these communities— and have employees live in these communities and subsidize to a ridiculous uh, level. I mean, taking a $2,000 a month property and saying we'll rent it for $800 a month. Uh, but also the transportation. He's going to take the boring company. Right now, the only, quote, boring company, uh, I guess, uh, project is between uh, Las Vegas, the airport, and the um, – uh, the convention center, which is only a couple of three miles from each other, but during conventions, it can take you an hour to get there. So uh, that's uh, what he's doing. So you're going to see, if you can imagine, the names uh, that have done this sort of thing, Walt Disney with Celebration, uh, John Hershey or John Kohler uh, with Kohler, Wisconsin, still there, uh, Milton Hershey of the Hershey Company, uh, that uh, town is still there. And can you imagine? You take three historical figures and you add uh, to that Elon Musk. Uh, that's that's a jump for him. That's quite a stretch, to say the least. Rainy Friday morning. We're in the middle of a storm. It's going to calm down uh, tomorrow. Uh, Steve, uh, you dr I know you drove in. What, what was the rain like? It was just barely sprinkling. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. Oh, quick reminder that today at 1 o'clock, Jane Wells filling in for John and Ken. All right.
Steve Gregory, who is uh, heard all the time here on KFI and the Unsolved shows tomorrow night from 7 to 9. And so, Steve, yesterday, or was it a couple of days ago, we were covering the um, the shooting of the, the shooting LAPD. of those yeah. three police officers, and and you've been following this uh, carefully. So, follow up. What's going yeah. on now? So, out of the three officers, all three who were shot on Wednesday night in Lincoln Heights, yesterday two of them were released from the hospital. So that's fantastic news. There's a third that's still in the hospital, getting additional medical treatment, but uh, he, that uh, officer is expected to fully recover. And uh, we learned the name of the suspected shooter yesterday. Uh, his name is Jonathan Magana, 33 years old. He was on parole for robbery. And the shed that he was uh, barricading, barricading himself in uh, might have been a shed on the property of his father's house. So um, it looks like they were doing some sort of a surveillance on him. Undercover officers with the Hollenbeck Division of the LAPD were surveilling him keeping an eye on him. Uh, one report that we got was that uh, it had to do with some sort of a drug uh, issue. Um, so that's uh, kind of what prompted it is this undercover team went in and then that's kind of when things went shaky. Now, uh, the story was uh, that yeah, he came out firing at the police officers but was found dead inside. Right. And was it, uh, we didn't know whether it was self-inflicted, whether he'd been shot by the police and then came back out. Usually you would think if someone goes out and starts shooting, they're dead right there. So what happened? Do we know? Well, I will tell you this much. Is that your phone? Oh, uh, yeah, I just dinged. Who's dinging you at this time I don't of the know. Day? I get, you know what I do is I get these spam stuff all spam the time. Spam dings? Yeah, I get those all the time. <laughs> you know I, I. You know what ends up happening is I, uh, you know, I, I, a lot for Social Security, a lot for car warranties, and I don't know why they're coming in on my texts. Well, I have they no know idea. you. They know you. That's why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they know you. Um, so what... I have been told is that officers did fire back. So to set it, set it up again. So when the officers put tear gas into that shed, uh, the door opened. Now, typically that person would surrender and come out. It would disorient them enough to where they could surrender and they could uh, get them safely into custody. But instead of opening the door and surrendering, he opened the door and opened fire. And that's when he hit the three officers. Now, somewhere in that exchange, they, the officers shot back. We don't know if all three shot back, how many shot back, how many rounds were fired. Then the door closed. Then a short time later, that's when SWAT sent in a robot. And after the gas cleared and the robot was able to get imagery from inside because they can get some great HD quality imagery, they noticed the man down on the floor unresponsive. And the sources uh, that were very close to the story that day had told me they saw an image of a what appeared to be a gunshot wound to the temple. Okay, so that indicates that it was uh, a self-inflicted wound. Uh, question about the three cops who were shot. And, you know, I'm obviously not an expert on procedure, and you have a much better grip on it. Uh, as the police approach uh, something like this, where you don't know someone's on the inside and they suspect someone's on the inside, you would think if there are three officers, they would be spread out. They wouldn't be close enough and uh, how was it that he was able with that? Let's, did he have a semi-automatic? Did he have an assault weapon? And he was able to hit three officers? That's something that we haven't been told yet by LAPD. Uh, we don't know what kind of weapon he had. And it, you're right. If he had some sort of a, a you know, <clears throat> semi-automatic, something that could rapid fire, 
extended magazine, uh, any of that kind of stuff that it would be possible for him to do kind of a spray right. of bullets, but we don't know. And I don't know if the officers were in some sort of a diamond formation, like a tactical formation to go in. Um, that might have, you know, that would put them close together, almost shoulder to shoulder. Um, and then they go in like that with a, maybe a shield in front of them. I, I don't know what the posture was that day, and I don't know how they were executing, um, you know, that, that operation. So those are all some questions we still have and answers we'll probably get soon. But uh, anytime it involves an officer in, a, in an officer-involved shooting like that, uh, the investigation gets a little more tight-lipped than if it were just a simple case okay. of someone shooting themselves. All right, so this is not unusual, this delay in getting this much information out. Um, not something like this. Uh, it's, I think every situation is different, but typically on an officer-involved shooting like this where the officers also get shot, the, the, the information's a little slower getting out. Okay. Uh, let's move over to probably one of the most interesting wildy uh, chases uh, that we've seen in a long time. <laughs> that one yesterday? Yes. Oh, my gosh. If uh, people didn't know, this uh, man took a pickup truck, a white pickup truck, and led sheriff's deputies on this chase yesterday in Compton, and it just went on and on and on. And then eventually, and, and it was wild because the L.A. County Sheriff's Department just recently started training their deputies how to do pit maneuvers. Right. Do you know what a pit maneuver I is? I do. I do. When you go up right next to a car and you swerve into it and it spins the car right. around, it brings it to a stop. Yes. Trivia. Do you know what pit stands for? Uh, oh, I used to know that. I do not. Pursuit intervention technique. Okay. Yeah. So good trivia there. That so is. <clears throat> when they, they were doing pit maneuver yesterday and it didn't disable the vehicle, didn't stall it out or didn't disorient the driver. So... He was able to take off, and he went over medians. He was straddling medians. He was knocking stuff down. And, I mean, he was just all over the place, and he was crashing into SUV, the uh, sheriff's department's SUVs. He was all over the place. Eventually, he made, he made a churn, and then he dead ends right at a, like a runoff, like a river co a concrete runoff, and he makes a dead end right there at a chain link, chain link fence, and that's when they all just swarmed in on him. And then that's when the standoff got interesting. It's one of these things where then we find out they zoom in on him, and he was he was breathing and sucking in on a balloon. And it was like, what is he doing? And then there'd be these clouds, these puffs of smoke. And then he would start laughing. Well, here's the thing. We, we was it all, nitrous? Did they... It was all nitrous. It was. So that's why he I'm was laughing. Let me just say this. I'm assuming it's nitrous because then he, he went from the balloon to the tank. He was actually... He had this, the tank in his arms, and he was literally turning it on and and huffing it in. Yeah, what else could it be? Yeah, well, everyone said helium. It's like he's not no, sitting there sucking no. helium. No, he's not. It's and so nitrous, the, right? Was, so, so anyway, so the police are starting to tell him jokes to subdue him. Never mind. Oh I know. I know. Okay. Well, this is how bad it got because then uh, deputies had moved in. And they lobbed um, uh, some, I, I don't know whether it was a hot pepper spray or it was tear gas. I'm not sure which was it, what it was, but they lobbed it because the back window of the pickup was open. So they lobbed it into the cab. Well, all the guy did was lean his head out the driver's side window, and he just sat there breathing. And, and you got great shots of it close up, and then that didn't work. So then they tried again. Well, then he started the truck by uh, a sheriff's deputy had pushed one of their SUVs up against the back of the truck to prevent him from getting out. Well, that didn't prevent him from starting the engine and throwing it in reverse and trying to spin out. And he just sat there spinning his wheels, spinning the tires and the, you know, smokes coming up. 
So anyway, they just had this standoff with him for two hours, two hours. And by now they called in uh, their SEB, which is the Special Enforcement Bureau, basically SWAT. So they call him in and they're trying to figure out. And, you know, years ago, they wouldn't have tolerated this. No, no, no. They would have gone in, grabbed him, pulled him out and, you know, and arrested him. But uh, now in this, by the way, with uh, an interlude of having a slight conversation with a baton with him. Well, I I can't say that. I would say that maybe he may have stumbled along the way. <laughs> uh, but I will tell you that you know the tolerance was much less back then. Sure. And now because of the hypersensitivity of everything, everyone's getting a little. You know they so we they just sit there and and they allow all of this to happen. All these resources called in for this one guy sitting there, literally getting high in front of them. Um, and they just sit there and let him do his thing. And then they kind of wait for the right moment. They had a crisis negotiator in there. And so, um, but it was interesting to watch the pursuit because I had just gone through pursuit training mm -hmm. up at the sheriff's department the other day. And uh, did we talk about this? I can't remember if we talked no, about how they. No, went, not the pursuit training. Yeah, when they do the pursuit training, you know, they can only go the speed limit. Deputies. I didn't know that. They're only allowed about a 20 mile an hour over. Threshold. So if someone's doing 80 miles an hour down the streets, they're gone. Technically, they're only allowed to go the speed limit. If that's warranted and it becomes a judgment call of the deputy in the vehicle and their supervisor in coordination with the supervisor back at the station, then they can exceed if they think it's reasonable to do so. All keeping all in mind that it's all about safety. If it's not safe to accelerate, they will not accelerate. They're not allowed to accelerate. Per policy, per law, actually. So they're allowed that 20-mile-an-hour threshold. That's the crazy thing. They're also not allowed to pass on the right <laughs> in a pursuit. Do they have to stop at stop signs? They have to slow down at, at intersections because that's one of the number one causes of crashes with law enforcement in pursuits, intersections. By the way, who doesn't do 20 miles an hour over the speed limit? That's everybody well, who's driving down the street. Not me. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, that's a joke, by the way. So how do you? So how do you catch someone who is speeding? Because obviously, uh, the person that's being uh, chased is not slowing down. Tracking by air. That's what they do. Yeah. So they'll they'll just track him because the, the theory is, and years ago, again, you know how things have evolved, but there was a time where in a pursuit. They were much more aggressive. Law enforcement were much more aggressive in getting in getting that person using the pit maneuver. CHP uses it all the time. Uh, LAPD has it. I don't. I don't know if they. They. I know they train it, but I don't know if they do it uh, as much. But um, the the idea is they were just trying to neutralize the threat. But what happened? Is bystanders are getting hit. Uh, bystanders are getting killed. And it's there's this outrage now. It's like, do you really have to expend all this risky resources to chase, um, you know, a car theft suspect? And that's kind of the theory now. They're now they're thinking they don't have to do it because it agitates the driver, and it it amps them up, and it forces them to do more reckless stuff. And that's kind of what they're that's where they're thinking. I mean, there's a logic to that. Yeah. And so I mean, the, there is the uh, training has has just as much to do with how to disengage from a chase is how to engage in a chase. Boy, policing is very different today. It's very it? different today. And it is, and I'm telling you, I'm up there with all those, the, the trainees, or the trainers up there, rather, and I went through the course. Now, we're putting a whole big video together, and we've got footage of me inside the car, and I had to do a pursuit, and I was being pursued, and, I mean, we did all this, and we're putting this uh, 
pretty cool video together for next week. But um, it's uh, it, let me tell you something. It's not as easy as it might look, and it's not as fun as it might look from the air. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Because I mean, you think about a cop gets in a car, it's like, oh, this is great. Oh, yeah, Let's go. Yeah. I will tell you this much that um, I was watching my speed because the the trainer also has the brake. Over on the passenger side, like the driver's ed. I don't know if you. Oh, I do. Yeah, I, I remember, remember that. that with a steering wheel and all well, of it. There was, it was no steering sides. wheel over there, but the, there was a brake over there, and so I remember going so fast at one point that um, he finally said, "Okay, you got him. You got him. You got to slow down now. You got to slow down." Anyway, all right, let's talk about uh, how we could go on forever on that. One. I know. Uh, uh, unsolved. Unsolved tomorrow, tomorrow night um, because of our upcoming summer, we are going to be focusing on arson. And we're going to be talking with an um, uh, investigator with the U.S. Forest Service about how they actually uh, solve arsons, how they track down the origins of a wildfire. So we're going to be uh, breaking that down and also a little bit about me going to arson investigator school. So I was able to do that as well. The first journalist ever allowed to do that. Uh, so, it's cool. Pretty cool. And I guess they teach you how, to, basically in reverse, how to create uh, a fire Uh by the way, do arsonists, uh, is there a way to do it where you don't get caught? I'm just curious. Or inevitably, the uh, and I'm not pushing this. I was going to say, what? No, because I, here's the question. It's like uh, the perfect murder kind of thing. And I've also, also always uh, wondered, because that has to be one of the most difficult crimes to solve is arson. Right, because, and, and this is what we're going to get into a little bit. There's two parts to this. There's the, how did the fire start? That's one of it. That's one separate investigation. And then who started it? That's the separate, that's a different investigation. So that it's a pretty interesting because first of all, they got to find out how it began. And then and as soon as they find out how it started, if it was done by an accelerant, if it's done with just like, um, uh, you know, like a, a rock getting hit that a lot of times in mowing lawns with tall grass out in the rural, rural areas and it's dry out there and the sparks, you know, they, they can find all that out. There's little metal shavings. They have big magnets that they'll put over the scene where they think it. Yeah, it and all these shards come up. You're like, oh, my God, there's the metal. Fascinating. Yeah, it is. It is. That's it's tomorrow night. Tomorrow uh, night, 7 at, to 9. Uh, tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. Steve, uh, we'll talk again. As Take always. care, buddy. Have, have a great a weekend. One. You too. We'll catch you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app.